We continue our journey through the book of Exodus this morning. Things are really heating up in the story. After nine plagues, Egypt is at this breaking point, uh, but Pharaoh is still digging in his heels. He thinks he still has some power and some negotiation leverage left in this confrontation, but he doesn't. So we're going to pick up the story in chapter 11. We'll be looking at the last plague today, the death of the firstborn. And like I did two weeks ago, I'm going to be reading the passage and comment, uh, commenting on it as we go. Uh, but first, I'd like to start with a little story. So my family and I like to splash around in some of uh, the rivers around here that come out of the escarpment, and our favorite is the Mad River. And there's a little swimming hole in Avenine that nobody knows about, so don't, you know, don't, don't go there during the summer, actually. I'll take you there someday. It's, it's a very lovely spot to swim and splash around. There's a nice deep swimming hole there. And one day last summer, I um, put on the goggles and I just dove down into the water and was swimming against the current, uh, just feeling the, the pressure of the water and also looking at all the rocks on the, the bottom of the river. And one of the times I went down, I found myself literally face to face with a crayfish face to face, and he looked at me with his funny little eyes, and I looked at him, we're, this, we're inches apart, and then he just looked at me, and he was just like, like get out of my river, you know, like this is my spot, and I just reached over, pinched his back, pulled him up, and put him in the plastic bucket that my kids were collecting things in. You know, he thought he was Mr. Mr. Claus there. But in relation to me, he was just this little itty-bitty thing. And I feel like that's a good picture to help us understand what's happening here in this unfolding drama between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is putting out his claws. He thinks he's got something. But really, what's being shown, what's being demonstrated through all the plagues is that he is but a wee little crayfish in relation to the Lord. So let's review just a few of the plagues to see how God is demonstrating his power and his authority, his bigness over Pharaoh. Remember that the symbol of Pharaoh's power was the cobra, which sort of if you look at ancient Egyptian uh, paraphernalia, the, these, their, their crowns had a, a cobra on the top, the emblem of Pharaoh's power. But Aaron's staff, when it turned to a snake, it ate the Egyptian snakes for breakfast. It swallowed them whole. The Nile was revered in Egypt. It was the Egyptian source of life and blessing. But at the touch of Moses' staff, it was turned into this river of death. Pharaoh thought of himself as a descendant of the sun god, Re, And all Egyptians thought that too. But at the word of the Lord, the sun was covered up and total darkness covered the land. These plagues are not just environmental catastrophes. They are demonstrations designed to showcase the reality that Pharaoh is nothing in comparison to the God who made the heavens and the earth. The first nine plagues were humiliating for Egypt, but the tenth plague is devastating. The wages of Pharaoh's continued rebellion is death. 
chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So what we see happening here is that people are starting to lose their faith in Pharaoh and are starting to put their faith in Moses because they all see what's happening here and it's becoming painfully obvious that the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. It's always a good day when bad ideologies or when bully politicians are exposed, exposed for the frauds that they are. Plagues, tests, catastrophes, they, they have a way of revealing what a person is made of. As investor Warren Buffett once said, when the tide goes out, it's not hard to tell who's been swimming naked. Sometimes I worry about the decline of Christianity in Canada and the rise of weird beliefs and concerning ideologies. But then again, what is there to worry about? For when the rain comes down and the flood waters rise, and they always do, people will be hungry for a firm foundation again. People will lose their faith in whatever person or idea cannot, whatever person or idea that cannot withstand the flood, they will lose their faith in that thing and they will begin searching for a new foundation. And that's what we see happening in Egypt. Egypt is starting to see that all uh, that their leader is nothing in comparison to the God of the Hebrews. If he won't give them the green light to leave, they will. And what's more, they will fund Israel's departure too. A few of them will even be so bold as to jump ship and join the Israelite community. More on them in a few weeks. Pick up the story of verse 4. So Moses is relaying this to Pharaoh now. Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he, will not, he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. It's crazy to me that um, Pharaoh thought this was another, like an, an empty threat or something. I mean, he went to bed that night without repenting, without taking precautions, without spreading the word. He had heard 
from Moses what the Lord was going to do. He did not trust. He did not believe. But all this is consistent with who Pharaoh is and the person he has become. Now, we might wonder how it is just for God to punish someone and a whole nation based on the fact that he, God, has hardened this person's heart. But this situation, the situation is more complex than that. Pharaoh Pharaoh is not simply a pawn in the story. He has agency. He has participated in his own trajectory. As Pastor Brittany mentioned last week, there is a paradox in the text with respect to Pharaoh. Half the time it is said that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and half the time it is said that it is God who has done the hardening. I kind of think of Pharaoh like a dead and dying tree. His roots have reached bedrock. The water has dried up. And God will not intervene to transplant him, but will let him harden off in his place. Pharaoh's path is set, and his destiny now is simply to showcase the justice of God before a watching world. And he and his people will suffer as a result. Let's jump to chapter 12, verse 29, where uh, God follows through on his word. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. There was not a house without someone dead. This is is a hard-hitting plague. All the other plagues were bad, uncomfortable, even really damaging to the environment, to the economic situation in Egypt. But most of them were more or less reversible, too. Crops can be replanted, herds replenished, rivers clean, but but a son. Can anything undo the death of a firstborn son? And did it have to come to this? Perhaps this is one of the reasons that Moses left Pharaoh's presence hot with anger. So much suffering due to the hardness of one man's heart. In ancient times, family pinned a lot on their eldest sons. They were set apart, equipped, Given the lion's share of the inheritance, an eldest son represented a future for the family, hope for tomorrow. But then death. From the eldest son in Pharaoh's house to the eldest son of the prisoner sitting in the dungeon. This is a harsh punishment and hard to understand too. I mean, we could perhaps understand God's heavy hand falling upon Pharaoh himself, but should the son really be made to suffer the sins of the father? And what about the slave girl sitting at her mill? You know, her eldest son was her pride, her joy, her hope for a better future. Why should her son be made to pay for the sins of one man? Sometimes I was thinking about that, And 
this is actually how it works a lot of the time, especially in geopolitical uh, wars, skirmishes. It's the sons who pay, the 20-year-olds, the 21-year-olds, 25-year-olds who are giving their lives because someone sends them off into battle. But the fact that this plague hit, hits every family equally and every flock equally for that matter is what's hardest for me to stomach. How to make sense of this? The first thing I think we need to see here is that this is not the first plague, but the last plague. God has fired many, many warning shots and he has fully communicated his plan with all parties involved. This is not a surprise. Like a consistent parent, God has been clear on the rule, the rules and clear on the consequences of breaking those rules. Pharaoh knew what God was going to do before he went to bed, and still he went to bed. No repentance, no obedience. The second thing I think we need to see is that hard as, hard as it is to say, the punishment, in a way, does fit the crime. Think of how many Israelite baby boys were thrown into the Nile when Pharaoh was trying to control the population. It was Pharaoh who issued the genocidal decree, but it was the Egyptians themselves who carried it out and tossed the babies into the water. Those were God's covenant children that Pharaoh and the Egyptians killed. When the Lord called to Abraham, he made a promise to Abraham, and he said to him, and to all the generations after him, he said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. The death of the firstborn is this curse in action. And in a way, the punishment is poetic justice. It fits the crime. And the same could be said about the plundering of Egypt. For more than a generation, Israelites worked in Egypt without pay. All of Egypt benefit, benefited from the, their free labor. But now they will leave with the wealth of Egypt jingling in their po pockets. God is just, and payday has come. Pharaoh believes that he can kill and enslave with impunity. Little does he know that there is one who is over him, who sees who judges perfectly, and who will, in the final analysis of things, ensure that everyone gets their just desserts. The scales of justice will be balanced. It might take 80 years or a thousand years, but God will see to it that justice is done. In a way, the death of the firstborn plague gives us a little window into a larger biblical theme, that of God's justice and that of the uh, judgment day, a day that all of us will face. Egypt faced it in the days of Moses. The land of Canaan faced it when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And Israel herself faced the, the day of God's judgment when God allowed the Babylonians and Assyrians to sweep in and carry off his people into exile. Each of these judgments came after an extensive period of waiting and warning. God fired warning shots. 
Like a consistent parent, he made explicit again and again the rules and the consequences of breaking the rules. Pharaoh was warned. The Canaanites were warned. For years, God sent prophets to his own people. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, and there was more. And all of them had the same message and were told to preach at least a similar message. The message being, if you keep doing what is wrong, there will be consequences. But if you humble yourself and if you repent of your sin, then God will forgive you and heal your land. But even Israel became hard and fruitless like a dying old tree. God is just and justice will be done. John the Baptist, when he was preaching to the crowds coming out to be baptized in the river, he he warned them. He said, the axe is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear fruit, judgment day, the axe will cut, the tree will be toppled and thrown into the fire. This theme of justice and judgment, it carries on through the New Testament too. Many of Jesus' parables are warnings about the coming judgment of God. The sheep will be separated from the goats. The good fish will be separated from the bad fish. The bridesmaids who are not ready for the bridegroom will not be able to join the celebration. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to live life maimed or crippled than to be thrown into the eternal fire. Peter and Paul continue with this line of thinking and reasoning too. Both of them warn their audiences in letters of the judgment that is to come when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And John gives us a vision, a technicolored vision of this great and terrible day in the book of Revelation. In his vision, the city of God, it it descends and the just judgment of God descends with it. Nothing evil or impure is allowed to enter the city and the devil and the evil are, are all evil and all who live in rebellion against the lamb are thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment day is real. Justice will be done. God has shown, God has told God gives a lot of time. Too much time sometimes, you might say. Because it is desire, says Peter, that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. But eventually he makes the call. Eventually he balances the scales. Justice will be done. I find this truth and this theme in the Bible to be both an incredible comfort and to be an incredible source of personal anxiety. It's a comfort because injustice is real and needs to be dealt with. Sometimes we have trouble with the idea of judgment and damnation and this lake of fire, but you know, but you know who doesn't have trouble with this idea? The woman who has just been raped. Or the Ukrainian grandmother who has just lost his entire, her entire family as a result of one of Putin's bombs. 
I was reading an article this week about uh, one of the things that's being alleged against the the Chinese government, um, not just interfering in our elections, but actually taking prisoners of conscience, putting them to death so that they can harvest their organs to be sold for profit. Injustice is real. And there is a lot of people who suffer because of it. And sometimes we wonder, does anyone see? Does anyone care? Will there be a day of reckoning or will people get away with murder? Think of the millions of Jews experimented upon and killed in concentration camps during the Second World War and the millions upon millions of people, many of them dying of starvation under Stalin's watch in communist Russia. Who will make this stop? The only hope of a world without injustice is the just judgment of God. And knowing that it will come one day is a mighty comfort. But it's also a source of anxiety because I too will stand before him and be judged. And I know that by my own merits, I don't deserve to enter the city of God either. As Paul says, no one is righteous, not even one. In fact, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Back in Egypt, while God was executing his justice in the homes of the Egyptians, the Israelites were gathering around a simple meal of lamb and unleavened bread. All of them that night were instructed to select a lamb without blemish. They were to kill it, prepare it, and they were also to paint the door frames of their houses with the blood of the lamb. Every house marked with the blood of, of the lamb was passed over and spared God's judgment. It wasn't that the Israelite camp was blameless. It's not as though they could withstand the day of God's judgment. Yes, they had suffered injustice, but they were far from being without sin. The slain lamb not only functioned as food for the journey ahead, it also stood in for their eldest son. That night in Egypt, there was a dead something in every house. In Egyptian homes, it was the dead son. In the Israelite homes, it was a dead lamb. God's justice was satisfied through the offering of a substitute. The Israelite sons were covered by the blood of the lamb. This theme, we're going to explore that more in a couple of weeks, um, but it also gets picked up in the sacrificial system that we learned about in Leviticus last year, this idea of a substitute standing in for the sin of the person offering the sacrifice. God demonstrates his justice in the Bible multiple times, but he also demonstrates his mercy 
His justice is fixed, and that is the way it needs to be, for evil needs to be dealt with. But his mercy is also available and powerful, and he provides us with substitute so that our sins can be forgiven. And this he completed fully and completely through the death of his own firstborn son, whom he did not withhold. Jesus didn't deserve to face the acts of God's justice. He was the opposite of Pharaoh. He was a tree full of life, full of fruit. He was humble. He was just. He was obedient. But in his love and by God's mercy, he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. Paul says at Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And then this second part of the sentence, so important. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul in his letter to the second Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not me who can face judgment day on my own. On my own, I fall. On my own, I do not deserve to enter the city. For my heart is hard too, and I have contributed to the dysfunction and injustice of the world. But in Christ, I am forgiven. I am justified. I am declared righteous. It's at the cross of Christ that God demonstrates both his justice and his great mercy. We see there both punishment for sin and salvation for the sinner. And the invitation for us all today is to receive the mercy of God in Christ, to mark the door frames of our houses and lives with his blood. In him is the reality of forgiveness and the hope that when he returns, he will put the world to rights. And may that day come soon. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we remember the gift of your Son and we take stock of your great plan banish injustice and to complete your creation. Lord, today we pray for all those who are suffering injustice. All around the world there is so much pain and unnecessary suffering at the hands of often what is just a few people. Lord, bring justice and bring it soon. And we recognize, Lord, that we're a part of that and that we need your forgiveness and to be changed. And we thank, we thank uh, our Savior for entering in, take, upon his, uh, take our sin upon himself, to take it to the cross, to deal with it once and for all. Our hope is in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.